1: And
2: I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 65 of The Lawyerist Podcast, where we talk with David Tallin about what technology contracts mean and when and how to negotiate them.
1: Today's podcast is sponsored by Smokeball. Turbocharge your small law firm with case management from Smokeball. Watch a two-minute demo at smokeball.com slash lawyerist. Today's podcast
2: is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Ruby answers our phones here at Lawyerist, so we don't have to worry about getting interrupted when we're being productive, and we love the job that they do for us. Uh, You can visit Ruby at callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial.
1: If you enjoy this show, please visit Lawyerist.com slash podcast and click on Support the Podcast to help us keep new episodes coming every week. Before we get to the conversation, we are in our third year of our short fiction contest, and you've got just over a month to submit your story of up to 5,000 words. The only requirement is it has to feature a lawyer as one of the main characters. There are more details in a post that's on the front page of Lawyerist, and I'm pretty excited at the number of submissions we've already got. Get yours in by June 1st to enter.
2: So, Sam, I'm a little reluctant to bring this up, but there was a post on Forbes.com a few weeks ago um, predicting that the time has come that a top 20 law school may finally need to close soon. And Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. More interestingly, the school they predicted might be the first to close is... Our law school.
1: No! <laughs> what is, why the University of Minnesota Law School? Um,
2: so, the post is mostly about the finances of this um, culture of reduced admissions and focus on scholarships. And fun- it's a funding crisis issue. And because mm-hmm. the University of Minnesota is a public law school... Um, their tuition dollars have been lower. It happens that they've had a greater reduction in admissions than some other schools, um, although there's also some question as to whether that's because the other schools aren't accurately reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, it's a money question that the school right now is being subsidized by the broader university, i.e. the public, um, and whether or not that is sustainable. And there's there's some analysis as to why this school and not others. And of course, this is just gossip and rumor and speculation. There are no announcements pending. Um, but it was fascinating to me that it's, of course, our law school that's at risk.
1: And I, I, my understanding of the, with just the gist of this is that uh, faced with declining applicants and a declining quality of the applicant pool, the University of Minnesota decided to take a smaller class, even though that would mean essentially digging into the endowment or subsidizing Um, class entrance or something like that is that about right
2: yeah so because fewer people are applying to law school and the u.s news among other things um uses gpa and lsat quality scores to check your rankings um the law school decided we can either accept more students in order to get tuition dollars but they will start averaging lower and lower on these metrics and therefore put our ranking at risk. Mm -hmm. Or we can keep our scores really high, but there will just be even fewer of those people to admit, and therefore we'll have fewer tuition dollars, even though our costs aren't really going down since we have tenured faculty with competitive contracts. Um, And so far the strategy has been to accept high-quality applicants with fewer of them and that is expensive and it turns out in the university of minnesota's case that it didn't even work because their their rankings in u.s news which is bullshit um went down a couple of Hmm. points
1: i mean intuitively i almost always favor quality over quantity but i can see how that could lead to be unsustainable in the long run so hopefully our diplomas don't become le- meaningless in the next five or so years.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I, I have actually mixed feelings about this, which is like, maybe you just go out with a bang. Maybe you, fi- <laughs> maybe you figure out how to goose the ratings one last time, get to like number 19, and then shut the doors, and then you never were below that.
1: There you go. Well, uh, I guess that'd be better than, than uh, just going out with a whimper. I mean, so. I, I don't want it to
2: fade away. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, I'd rather just have them figure out how to be sustainable and successful, but it's not clear to me that anyone at that school or any other knows how to do that at the moment, given the demographic problems.
1: So there you go. We're we're now crossing our fingers that we don't get ghosted by our law school. Yeah. What happens then? I don't even know. I think we're still allowed to be lawyers. But to be clear, it's just a speculation. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and, and we're hoping it doesn't happen, yes. I guess. <laughs> go go first. Well, on that sad note, here's my conversation with David.
0: Hi, I'm David Tolan, and I'm the founder of Sycamore Legal in San Francisco. Uh, I'm also the author of the Tech Contracts Handbook, Handbook, uh which is the American Bar Association's manual on negotiating and drafting information technology agreements, cloud computing, software licensing, etc. In addition to practicing law, doing technology and intellectual property transactions, I train attorneys and business people on how to negotiate and draft IT contracts, and I serve as an expert witness on the subject. And you can learn about all of that stuff at the website for my book, which is techcontracts.com.
1: So um, tell me a little bit more about that, because this is a thing that I know that you can do. Um, I know that people can negotiate contracts and obviously they need to be drafted and, and, uh, and people need them. But, um, but tell me a little bit about what kinds of things you train when you train. What do people need to know?
0: sure the the main we do a variety of different trainings, but the main thing is a clause by clause review of the the terms that normally come up in an information technology contract. so we'll we'll do it kind of in a logical order. We'll start with the sort of central clauses like the software license or the promise to provide uh, software as a service or other cloud computing, the promise to pay. And we go through a lot of the terms that are most heavily negotiated, particularly indemnities. We spend a lot of time on that because it's it's very widely misunderstood. Um, limitation of liability, warranties, uh, data security is something we spend a lot of time. And the point of the trainings is to give attorneys, as well as contract managers and and salespeople, sometimes, but but anyway, to give attorneys a sense of what's at stake in each of these clauses. Uh, what they should be worried about on behalf of either the vendor or the customer, and how to negotiate them, how to get the best terms, what what the, uh, the issues really are, both for you and for the other side.
1: So are we talking about the kinds of contracts that govern my Google Apps account and my practice management software and my email account and stuff like that?
0: We are. We're, we're talking about those kinds of contracts, except... Uh, those contracts are often not very negotiable. So, you know, if you're an attorney representing the one of those companies, representing Google, representing whatever company is providing your practice management software, you might be writing those contracts. And, and our training and, and my book, incidentally, are, are all about teaching you how to do that. But you're probably not going to negotiate those terms. Um, those are form contracts. If you're on the other end, if you're, for instance, representing a customer that's buying those systems, or you're buying them for your own law firm, um, well, the question is going to be, are you big enough and do you have enough clout to make the vendor negotiate the terms, or are you just reviewing the standard contract? Uh, the, the hope is either way, you're at least informed about what you're doing, even though the the just reviewing the standard contract and saying yes or no is not always a pleasant option.
1: <laughs> and and sometimes, obviously, that's, that is you don't have to take that option. You might be big enough to negotiate, but let's push that off for a minute and talk about like, what are the terms that matter. Let, like, so, let's say I am a lawyer and I'm, and I'm buying uh, uh, something like office 365 or I'm buying Google apps or I'm signing up for practice management software in the cloud. What are the terms that really matter? What are the terms that I need to focus on and be concerned about?
0: Yeah. So it's, if you're a even a very large law firm, you're probably not negotiating the terms for office three sixty five or Google Apps because uh they're just not going to negotiate um mm-hmm. in obviously the case if you're a small law firm on the other hand your your particular software vendor maybe you'll be negotiating but anyway, whether you're negotiating or not, there's a variety of terms that you should look for i mean obviously we're all lawyers and we want to look at at everything in the contract and I encourage you to read the whole thing um but Things to look out for in particular are, for instance, data licenses. A lot of the contracts you get from online vendors have licenses to your data, and more importantly, your client's data, that essentially gives it to the vendor. The vendor gets these extremely broad, unrestricted rights to reuse the data, there's some licenses that even clarify they can use it for marketing purposes or whatever. Um, that's a real red flag, and of course it raises ethical issues for a lawyer if you're if you're putting your client's data on one of those systems. Okay, so hold um, on. Every
1: time every time Google updates its uh, its license agreement, or or Evernote does, or Dropbox does, somebody posts. You know, oh my God, they're claiming to own all of your data and they can just pull it pull a document out of their, your account and put it up on their marketing website and you've got no, no protection from that. Is, is that right?
0: That is right. At least last time I checked Google's terms for standard Google Docs, the free Google Docs you don't pay for, that's what they said. They have this really broad, super uh, you know, time unrestricted, use unrestricted license to data that's put in Google Docs. Um, But But isn't
1: it modified by the, in order to provide the service to you?
0: It's modified by that where they say that, but my recollection, and I don't have the Google license in front of me, is they don't say that. Or rather, they say, in order to provide the service to you, as well as to market and improve the service. It's hard to guess where that all ends. Now, to be fair to Google, it's a free service. I mean, there. You know, if you if you get Google Business Docs, I think you get much better terms. The the service you pay for. But yeah, it's a crazy broad license that you get with Google Docs. I'm not even sure why they do it because they don't really. Well, right. Let's need be or realistic. Have
1: they? Rides. Is there any evidence that they've ever pulled a document out of somebody's account and plastered it on the homepage? I don't. I don't think so. I I,
0: I don't think so either. I haven't heard that they have. Um, you know, though. It's one thing to advise a client that Google might do this, but it's not likely the cl- for the client to decide. But when you're the law firm mm-hmm. and it's your client's documents, I don't think that's an option.
1: Yeah, you can't really go to your client and say, by the way, um, I've signed up with Google, which um, claims the right to be able to distribute this wherever they want to. Although I'm pretty yeah. sure they won't ever do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think I think that's right. I think you just can't do that. You need to go to the paid Google account or or some other vendor.
1: Well, and in the case of Google, they have the Google Apps for Work account, which does have different terms. And we've always set told everybody they should probably not be using the free Google account for a variety of reasons. One of which is those terms.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I use free Google for all kinds of stuff. But, you know, to be honest, I, I do, and I just I just live with it. But it's. It's my stuff. It's not my client's data. I would not put client's data on there. Hmm. And yeah, you usually get better terms from a vendor like Google as well as Box, Microsoft, lots of others where you're doing a paid account. And then they have a much more restricted data license that, that usually will say and should say something like, we won't use your data for any purpose other than to provide the service to you. Um, there's no particular reason a vendor needs more rights than that. They may get rights to anonymized data. They may get the rights to collect statistics from your data, but it's got to be anonymized and and you know pure statistics without any identifying marks.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so data licenses is, is important. Uh, what other terms should really we 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 focus in on?
0: well so we're we're a bit obsessive on data and and with good reasons in in cloud type services, so the next part is data security and management, and so that's a separate issue from the license that's sometimes confused, but the license is all about what rights they have. Data security clause is all about what steps they're going to take to protect the data um, and so you want uh as much as you can possibly get uh, with most standardized vendors you you have pretty vanilla stuff where they're saying that they will take reasonable steps to protect your data. Sometimes they'll even go so far as to say that they won't violate applicable privacy and other data-related laws. And then sometimes they'll go even farther, and this is one of the most valuable things you can get, which is that they do outside audits. They'll do like a SOC 2 uh, SSAE 16, ISO 27001, those are all sort of buzzwords for these, these normal outside audits. If they're doing an annual audit and reporting uh, at least at a high level what the results are, that's a, a good source of comfort. And in, a, in a lot of cases, that's the best you can get if you're not able to negotiate terms.
1: You're doing that is the due diligence, you're sort of outsourcing your due diligence to their auditor.
0: That's right. That's a good way to put it. And their auditor probably knows more about it than you are. <laughs> right. But I want to be clear, too, though. I'm talking about right now the deal where, say, you're, you're getting uh, services on behalf of a small law firm. If you're mm-hmm. negotiating on behalf of a client and the client has any cloud, you generally want to go beyond the audit. There's a lot of data security terms that, that you can go get on behalf of a client that, that has the cloud to negotiate with the vendor. Gotcha.
1: When, when we talk about security, uh, I think it's interesting because the, the license is one of the places I go to when I can't find a really clear description of how data is stored and managed, because I find that the license agreement often has, has clues or hints as to what's really going on. Um, and there's a, just a, such a wide variety of it. For example, um, I, I had done a post about Evernote and whether or not you should be comfortable storing your data in Evernote. And one of the things that turned out that I still think is weird about Evernote is they don't encrypt your data at rest. Um, they store it caged inside of a secure server su- facility uh, and they control who has the keys to the cage and all, but your data is sitting there unencrypted on Evernote servers. And I that kind of makes me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and the only place I could find that information was in the license agreement.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So it is sometimes the case that you find... You, you sort of find where the skeletons are buried in the license agreement, because although no one's tried very hard to inform their customers about the details of data security, the lawyers drafting the contracts have, have mm-hmm. gotten careful and they want to disclose a lot. That said, sometimes you don't find it in the license agreement. The license agreement talks in, in very general terms.
1: Or maybe it was in um, the privacy terms, too, which is the other place to look for stuff like that.
0: Yeah, that's right. Usually connected to arguably part of the license agreement. Mm -hmm. Um, That's right. I mean, sometimes you can find technical documentation online that says what they do. Um, Another question, though, then becomes, are you in a position to really make sense of it and understand it? Um, And sometimes sometimes the answer is no, and you're going to some extent on things like reputation as well as that outside audit.
1: Yeah, and there are a bunch of different... I mean, even when it comes to how is your data transmitted and stored securely, there's just a whole bunch of different ways. But I think the important thing for lawyers is to really parse that language carefully. I, I got into an argument with someone about, um, you know, the, who didn't understand the difficult difference between SSL encryption, which is encryption the data while it's in transit, while it's moving over the wires between your computer and, and the server that, on which it's going to be stored and encryption at rest, which means whether or not it's actually encrypted on the servers. Those are different things, um, and it's a good idea to know when and where your data is going to be encrypted. Is it going to be encrypted before it leaves your computer? Is it going to be encrypted over the air, um, over over the wires, and is it going to be encrypted at rest? And then there are, there are other approaches like Google's... Um, Google, you know, blows it apart and stores little bits of your data all over the place and reassembles it on its own so that if somebody swiped a server from Google, it wouldn't do them any good. Um, so, yeah. I, I just think it's really good to understand what's happening, whether or not you decide it's for you or not.
0: It is. And the more you understand it, the more you understand the terms, the better. And the more the, the more your eyes are open, the better. And that's also, there's a legal implication to that, which is as an attorney, you're not, in most states at least, required to hit any particular level of data security. The general mm-hmm. requirement is that you have made reasonable efforts. Um, so, make reasonable efforts and in getting to understand and assessing that the vendor in question is is the best risk for your client 's data make may qualify as reasonable efforts
1: it 's probably not reasonable to make no inquiry
0: <laughs> that's right I, I think you 're not going to qualify there
1: that doesn 't qualify as an effort
0: <laughs> yeah, just to, to throw some, something in though on behalf of the vendors and and we represent both vendors and uh, customers in in uh, i t contracts mm-hmm. From their point of view, you know, they, they do have to take some reasonable steps to limit their liability. It's also, as distressing as it is sometimes to read what they do and don't do about data security and to think it through, you have to ask yourself, what's the alternative? So Mm -hmm. if instead of using, for instance, a cloud-based vendor like Google or Box or somebody like that, you go and say, well, we're just going to have a server and we're going to avoid all this and put our software on it. Which is a terrible idea. Are you sure? (laughs) Yeah, well, Well, I mean, maybe you've got the skills for it. My old firm, we used to do it because we had a bunch of techies who who loved to play with things like that. But well, you have to ask yourself, can I actually keep the data safer than this vendor? Because mm-hmm. um, as distressing as it all may sound, it's still maybe many generations better than what you could ever pull off in your law firm. And, and that's, you know, I advise clients about this all the time. Here are the holes in the data security terms, let's try and get better. But if the solution is to just not go to the cloud, are you sure we can keep it safer? And often the answer is no.
1: No, and there are, there are trade-offs to just about everything. I mean, there are reasons why Dropbox, for example, doesn't try and encrypt your data before it sends it um, and just sends it over an encrypted pipeline. Um, there are reasons why it does that. There are reasons why a, why a cloud vendor keeps your um, security keys instead of giving them to you because otherwise there's no web app for you to use. And, yeah, um, that's right. and so it's really worth... Um, assessing, you know, can I get what I want without these trade-offs? And sometimes, and maybe often, the answer is no—that you can't get what you want without those trade-offs.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, and particularly if you're a small uh, law firm or you're representing a small company, uh, often the answer is that you're you're making these trade-offs, and so you just need to assess what's the least p- level of pain.
1: So you mentioned earlier uh, uh, indemnity, and one of the reasons that uh, I would think you might want to go ahead and store on somebody else's server than on your own is because then you have somebody to sue for negligence if your data gets ripped off.
0: <laughs> yeah, hopefully, um, except uh, you're going to be limited by a substantial limit of liability clause in the vendor's contract. In most cases that will not have an exception for, uh for data breach. Mm. Um, and again, it's the vendor, you know, that, that, would be a level of risk that I think most vendors, certainly most of our clients say they just can't take um, to have unlimited liability for data breach as, as central a concern as it is to them and to their customers. Um, so, you know, I'm glad you asked about indemnity though. The the problem with indemnity, I, I could I could literally spend two hours and, <laughs> and really bore you on indemnity. Um, the problem with indemnity is that it's, it's widely misunderstood. Lawyers, and I'll, I'll just say briefly something that's a long explanation, lawyers tend to look at the indemnity clause as sort of a penalty. They look at it as a clause that says, if you do something bad, like you have an IP problem or you sexually harass one of our people or something like that, the indemnity is your punishment. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so there's all this drafting that basically is based on the assumption that we're going to know who was bad, and that person is an indemnitor. Mm -hmm. The truth is, indemnities are not punishment. This is a risk-shifting clause. It's a clause that says, who is responsible for XYZ type of claim? Whether the claim is any good or not, who's going to defend lawsuits by third parties? That's a really important thing to keep keep in mind as you draft your indemnity clause. You're you're trying to say who will defend a type of claim, whether there's any fault or not. And the failure to see that leads a lot of lawyers astray. Hmm.
1: And so, once you've determined faults, is there sort of a fallback that you recommend?
0: Well, so in at the contract drafting stage. You're not going to determine fault. You're drafting around what might happen if a claim is made. Mm -hmm. So to take the example of the typical IP indemnity, you don't have terms that say the vendor will defend claims about, you know, patent infringement claims about its software if the claims are good. Mm -hmm. You're saying that the vendor will defend the claims. That gets us back to why you don't get a data security indemnity. (laughs) From a vendor's point of view, to say, we're going to indemnify you if there's a leak it's so it's so likely that the the cause of the leak will be unclear or the leak will be caused by the customer or factors outside the vendor's control that to make that promise would be taking on an obligation that might include defending cases where the vendor didn't do anything wrong. So, I mean, maybe one of the takeaways just from that is to recognize that as much as you'd like an indemnity for claims about a data breach by the vendor, it's extremely rare to get it. It's just not normal terms.
1: Well, and I, I suppose it's worth um, stopping to note that often the biggest security hole is the user, not the company. Yeah. I mean, mo- yeah, most intrusion exactly right. happens because somebody uses a, ter- a terrible password like mm-hmm. 12345.
0: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and the vendor's perspective is, you know, that that's more likely than not going to be the cause. We're not defending that case.
1: And it's so it seems to me indemnity um, and data issues are, are obviously pretty important things to check in the license, the privacy policy. Anything else that we should zero in on?
0: Uh, yeah, there's a lot of other kinds of stuff. So one of the most practically day-to-day important terms, possibly the most important terms, will be the service level agreement or in some cases warranties. And the mm-hmm. service level agreement is a place you can look to see at least how much the vendor promises um, you know h- how much the things that may have been told to you by a salesperson for instance match what they'll actually do huh. um, the service level agreement will do will say things like how often you know how 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 much downtime uh you get and do you get a credit things like that again it's not very common that they're negotiable but you can at least compare different vendors service level agreements A vendor that promises more will probably deliver more, and so a better SLA really is a real asset to look for.
1: Although I've noticed that uh, when you actually try and run the numbers, it depends on how much you're paying for the service, but they often give you like a proportional refund or something if they, or they'll offer that, and those really often aren't worth a whole lot.
0: That's right. So look at the value of the service level agreement as rarely really about getting serious money, which you probably don't want anyway. You want the service to work. (laughs) The point is that if the vendor's offered non-negligible credits for service failures to you, it's offered them to all of its other customers. And so the vendor has put itself in a position where failing to provide good service causes pain. That's what you want. You want them to be worried about the pain And make the service good, even though your particular piece of that pain, your particular credit might not be worth having.
1: Well, that's a really good point. If they've promised to give proportional reimbursements and by the time they get done paying all of their customers, it might look like tens of thousands of dollars, um, even if your chunk is only a few hundred bucks or or a few dozen
0: bucks, really. That's exactly right. Yeah. You know, service level agreements too, you gotta you gotta read very thoughtfully. Often you'll see things like uh, you know, nine five nines, ninety nine point nine 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 percent uptime. But then then if you look carefully, so that, that's a promise that the system will work 99.999% of any month. If you look mm-hmm. carefully, you realize that what they're actually promising is that you can access it, that uptime just means it's successful. It doesn't mean it's going to work. And sometimes <laughs> that's the end of the promise. Or you see definitions of uptime that have so many exceptions for scheduled and emergency maintenance that it's really a promise that it'll work 75% of the time you do need to be aware of those things and look at it and, and again, use them as a basis for comparison between vendors. That said, it's just not that common that you're going to get them to to revise those terms.
1: Well, I think it's probably fair to point out that uh, anytime you're dealing with a vendor, uh, downtime is something they really, really don't want. I mean, whenever Google do- goes down, the entire internet explodes and there are tens of thousands of blog posts written about how Google is down. And uh, Twitter was down the night before we we're recording this. And uh, it I I heard about it even this morning. People were talking about the fact that Twitter was down. And oh my God, they must have been running around with their haircut uh, on fire. So nobody wants to be down. Um, but yeah, it's I, I think uh, looking at that as a, Level of confidence is probably a good idea to do. Good way to do it.
0: Yeah, level of confidence rather than really valuable remedy.
1: Any other uh, terms that we should probably probably check out? while we're looking at the agreement, besides reviewing the entire license to make sure there's nothing hidden in there
0: you know I could go on and on so <laughs> other things to look at uh, I'll say briefly limitation of liability there's always going to be one it's standard in the industry but some vendors will limit their liability to 30 days fees and some will limit it to a year or something more reasonable it's not it worries me a bit if a vendor is is going to the extreme on limit of liability um, if they've just got the lowest limit they conceivably can. It actually might worry me a bit as their lawyer, because if they go too low, it starts to border on unconscionable and so not enforceable. But anyway, you you have to think through, why do, they, why do they want their liability to be more limited than most in the industry? And a year's worth of fees is a pretty common thing in the industry.
1: It sounds like comparing one licensing agreement to another is probably a good way to start getting an idea of what things are flexible and what things to focus in on.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Even if they're not negotiable, comparing terms across each other, and and lawyers are unusual customers for tech companies in that they can do that relatively easily. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Well, that's all good stuff. So let's take two minutes from our sponsors, and then I want to come back and talk about what is negotiable and how should you go about it, and when is that an option for you?
2: Wish there was a case management system built just for your area of law. Smokeball comes with over 200 different matter types to support the way you work. Turn case details into documents with automated templates, convert and email PDFs with just a click, and stay on top of every detail and task with workflow tools. Check out Smokeball for your small law firm and never miss a detail again. Watch a two-minute demo at smokeball.com slash lawyerist today.
1: This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted. So when the phone rings, it annoys me and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, we're back and uh, we started out at the very beginning. You mentioned that sometimes contracts are negotiable and... Um, Obviously, negotiating with a behemoth like Microsoft or Google is probably not an option, even for large companies. But one of the things I've noticed is that with some of the smaller legal tech companies, and and even though some legal tech companies are very raising some eye-popping numbers um, for investment, most of them are still quite small companies in the grand scheme of things. They're not Google and Microsoft. And um, and I in talking with them, I, I hear them talking about negotiating with law firms for the practice management software licensing agreement and things like that. And I and I notice that the newer a company is probably the more willing they are to negotiate is is what it kind of seems to me because they're trying to nail down those contracts. So so when is it an option and what's negotiable?
0: So I would go into it assuming that it's always an option again, unless you're dealing with one of the behemoths where you know it isn't. Um, And so if you're actually in real live contact with a human being at the vendor, that's a good start. And let's try a trial balloon. Uh, And by trial balloon, I don't mean, say... Would it be okay if I sent you some revisions? Are you willing to accept them? Because you're fishing <laughs> for the answer being no at that point. Instead, you say, "All right, why don't you send me your contract as a Word document, uh, and I'll uh, I'll send you my revisions." Um, and, and and start it from the point of view that it's your assumption. That the terms are negotiable. No, no harm done if you find out they absolutely are not. But, but that may get you a more positive answer. Um, incidentally, the answer may be, well, we can we can only send it to you as a PDF. I find that's one of my pet peeves in in larger negotiations. But anyway, if you have to live with that. Get a pen um, and and cross stuff out, and you know don't hesitate to attach a word document and let's fix the terms that you can one way or another you're going to get a sense in that conversation of whether you're going to get anywhere
1: and um, is there a chance do you think that even a solo could negotiate a contract with for practice management software
0: I think so well if it's if it's a small enough vendor so a lot of times, when you say practice management software, what you've got is a technology services vendor, and mm-hmm. you've you've outsourced your technology to them, and they're buying the practice management software uh, from somebody else. Most likely, they can't negotiate the terms of that license, um, but you can negotiate your terms with them, um, and and so, more likely than not, that's what you're negotiating. I haven't run into a situation where a law firm's actually negotiating with a practice management vendor itself, with the software vendor. Um, and we don't we don't represent a lot of law firms. We we train them how to do these things, but we don't uh, represent them. Few, few law firms want to be represented, particularly on a small deal like that. Hmm. Um, so I don't know, but I certainly have heard of people uh, negotiating with at least their services vendor.
1: Well, let's just say then that uh, if you're listening and you've negotiated a contract like that, we'd be interested in hearing about it. Um, how, let so let's say you've got the contract, where should you start marking it up? What, I mean, what, what sorts of, where can you get the most leeway and, and what are sort of your bargaining chips?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. You don't session, have to give should. away
1: all your secrets here, but I, you know, give us kind of the overview.
0: Actually, I've already given away all my secrets in my book, the tech contract <laughs> handbook. So, uh, you know, people warn me, don't do this. you no one's ever going to retain you, but, uh, yeah. it's actually worked out pretty well. Um, so, but, but anyway, um, just the clauses that we're talking about are important places to start. So, for instance, marking up the data license should be really simple. If you're at all able to negotiate and they've got one of those crazy licenses that says we can use your data to market our service and to improve it and everything, that's a that should be a simple and easy thing to get done, and it is one of your most important things if your client's data is going to be on there, which is to just say they can only use the data in order to provide uh, the services to me, to the law firm. Hmm. Um, You also should probably look carefully at the limitation of liability clause and see if the number is excessively low. Um, I consider that negotiable because the chances you're actually going to sue and want them to be liable are low, but excessively low is a point where you might be able to push back. I think it's not very likely that you're going to get Better terms than they already offer on the service level agreement. Um, normally, even for a small vendor, the service level agreement is a kind of fixed thing. It just is what it is, um, and so they're not gonna they're not gonna change it. And they they actually have a good argument there, which is it's incredibly difficult to manage an SLA for a large slate of clients where they have different terms. Um, and that that's not a that's not bull. That's a real. That's a real concern that they have. They're not likely to get very far there. But if you find the SLA adic- inadequate, you might be able to add on top of it some kind of a warranty that it will perform according to its specifications, mm. the system. And then if it doesn't, um, you can terminate, you get, maybe you get money back, something along those lines. Um, those, are, those are often possible to do with smaller vendors and worth trying.
1: Is there any chance you can get them to use greater security?
0: That's a really good question. Even on very big deals, um, you always have to ask: Are you gonna? Are you gonna? In your data security negotiations, are you gonna get them to do things they're not currently doing, or are you just gonna increase their liability for for breaches and for failing to protect? Obviously, if you can get them to do more than they're doing, great. But often it's not the case. For instance, if they're not doing that audit, that SOC one, SOC two audit, as much as you'd like that that's an expensive and time-consuming thing. They're probably not going to do it just because you've asked for it. I think you have to ask, do we want a vendor who, who doesn't have any kind of external audit of their systems? And I'm not saying the answer is necessarily no. You might decide that that's just what the market will bear and you'll do it. Um, but anyway, often those data security negotiations you know, the impact is that you increase their risk and their liability if they don't protect your ven- your data, and, and reduce your potential liability to third parties by having good contract terms, without getting them to promise any concrete different steps.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, I I you've mentioned your book a couple times, and it sounds like that's a great place for people to start if they have questions about this. I'm curious about coming at your book from another direction, which is how has publishing that book worked for you as a way to market your firm and your training?
0: Uh, yeah, it's been a great thing. It it uh, I originally wrote it, I originally did talks on tech contracts and people would always ask me if there was a good book and I didn't know of anything reasonably short and user-friendly. So finally I decided to write it. And I initially self-published it and I looked at it as a sort of leave behind uh from marketing from marketing purposes and as as training for my own people um but then eventually the ABA picked it up and that's that's really been great it it has been a tremendous boost to our practice and it also plays a, a substantial role in bringing in customers for the training business we we do both in-house training of you know like a corporate counsel staff or a law firm staff uh and and eventually we're going to do public trainings and the books played a really central role in in making people aware of us and and getting them to inquire about training
1: huh so would you recommend it to other lawyers who have a pretty discreet uh practice area like yours that maybe writing writing literally writing the book on the subject is a good way to go
0: well, who's not going to recommend his own book? Um, <laughs> so I, my grandmother thinks it's the best book she's ever read. Um, so, yes, I, I absolutely recommend it. So it is, it is written from the point of view of helping you negotiate technology contracts. It's not particular to, you know, representing yourself as a law firm. It's more about uh, deals between typical technology customers and vendors. It's so you've written, written it for clients, really? It, for, for clients, yeah. Well, for clients as well as lawyers. So we hear from a lot of law firms that buy it and it's both people who specialize in the area as well as people who who do other types of work but need to occasionally do tech contracts. Like maybe they're corporate experts but they, they occasionally have to do a software license or maybe they're in-house and they have a lot of responsibility. and this is one of them. Um, and it's I mean, it's super user-friendly. That's really the key to the book. It's written in very simple English. It, it's got sample clauses. Incidentally, they're all available or will be very shortly for free on the website. You can just copy and paste them uh, uh, at techcontracts.com. So it's got all these resources you can use and easily. It's just not one of these sort of legal tones that you have to really, really dive into and get your head around. It's meant to be quick, light, easily accessible.
1: That sounds like some good guidelines if another lawyer was going to, um, try and wrap their practice up in a book for, a, for their, their own clients or per- prospective training customers or whatever they have. So
0: I recommend cool. it highly. Write a book. It, it also helps you refine your own skills. It, it forces you to look stuff up and figure stuff out that you may do day to day but haven't really thought about. The exercise of explaining it will, will sharpen your legal skills.
1: Well, and you, you alluded br- very briefly to the fact that you use it for training for your own people
0: yeah i do it's and i also it's the handout when i do in-house trainings i so mm-hmm. i give it to them yeah because it, it's I, I use it myself too i use the table of contents as an issue spotter just to make sure i'm not missing anything It's it's got all those uses
1: very cool well we will make sure and include a link to your book in our show notes and uh, as as well as some of the other stuff we've mentioned so david thank you so much for being on the podcast today my pleasure make sure you catch next week's episode of the lawyerist podcast subscribe to the Lawyerist podcast in itunes or in your favorite podcast app you can listen to it at lawyeristcom slash podcast you can also subscribe to the lawyerist insider our weekly newsletter just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top we'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode thanks for listening